Recently, we've been trying our best to give some time to companies that are working in the space industry to find out exactly what it is they're doing. And this episode is another one of those. Yep. So today we're talking to Tony Frago, VP of Mission Management for Spaceflight Inc., the Uber of space. If you've got a payload, they want to deliver it. Yes. If you could send something to space, what would it be? Uh, let us know of oh what. Let us know <laughs> via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us on Patreon. Find out how by visiting patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy episode 118 of the Space and Things Podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 118 of the Space and Things podcast. We recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago in anticipation of the two of us being a little bit busy. This week, I'm in New Mexico for the next Celestis launch. And I flew across the pond to visit some air and space museums in the US before heading to Hutchinson, Kansas to go to a huge celebratory event for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 17, where I'll be meeting Emily in person for the very first time. Which is quite a big deal for both of us since we've been doing this for nearly two and a half years. Yeah, that crazy. is what it is. Anyway, fortunately, we were organized enough to have some episodes prepared for you while we're busy. And this week, we're having a look at satellite delivery and deployment with Tony Frago, the VP of Mission Management of Spaceflight Inc. So without any further ado, let's crack on with the interview and figure out what this company does and why it's important. All right. So welcome, Tony. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Space and Things. So before we get on to Spaceflight, Inc., uh, let's learn a little bit about you. So how did you end up at an aerospace company and when did space become a, a big deal for you? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Yeah, I uh, I guess when I when I think back about, you know, kind of how I got into the space industry, I've I've always been fascinated with space, with constellations, looking at the stars and it sounds maybe a little bit too on point, but kind of interested in uh, the thought that we're not alone mm. out there. Um, I had an uncle who uh, we affectionately called the Time Lord. He always uh, <laughs> he always talked about traveling back and visiting the dinosaurs or traveling in the future. So sci-fi has always kind of been a part of of the lexicon in in my life. Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, reading two thousand one uh, at a very young age was was all very interesting to me. Once I got a little bit older, was thinking about careers. I liked airplanes. I liked science. I liked math. I guess the engineer choice was, well, those three together mean I need to be an engineer and I probably should be an aeronautical engineer. Um, and so I went to school at uh, Western Michigan University uh, nearby where I grew up. Uh, I got an aeronautical engineering degree and one of my close friends there knew of a company called ATK. Um, which uh, you all might now know as uh, Northrop Grumman. They were Orbital ATK for a little while, um, but 
the ATK that I went and became part of built the solid rocket boosters for the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. And so that was what truly kind of got me started in the space industry field. And so I was a nozzle design engineer uh, at ATK wow. cool. uh, in Utah. And I did uh, probably one of the cooler things I worked on was post-fire disassembly work. So you guys and your your listeners are probably familiar that the solid rocket boosters for the shuttle would splash down after launch. They would be towed back to port. And uh, what we would do is we would actually travel down there to Florida, review all of the uh, the rockets and the components and make sure that they performed as expected. Um, and as a you know 21, 22 year old fresh out of college, I mean, it was such a cool opportunity to be to be part of that. Obviously, the shuttle program ended. I took my talents over to a company called Aerojet which is located not too far away from where Spaceflight is now um, and worked in space propulsion for them. I, I was the project manager for a 200 pound biprop product wow. line. Um, and so a little bit of a, you know, got kind of the first picture of getting into orbit with the solid rocket boosters. And then uh, Aerojet was the view of what do you do when you're in orbit, um, whether it's an Apogee or a thrust vectoring type nozzle. So that was a, a little bit about how I got into there. And then after Aerojet, I had an opportunity here at Spaceflight. ATK and Aerojet were both great companies. You know, they gave me a lot of the experience that I use today. I really wanted to work for a smaller company. Um, I wanted to work for someplace where I felt like my contributions truly mattered. I also wanted to work on products that I could kind of see from cradle to grave. So as part of the work that I do right now, I first start to engage with customers even before contract signing. Sometimes it's before they even have the spacecraft built. Um, sometimes it's a it's a paper spacecraft at that point, so to speak. <laughs> and getting to work with them, you know, across months and years, meeting with them at the launch site for integration, being there with them and talking with them as the spacecraft gets launched, and hearing back from them that they've made comms on orbit uh, is is a really, really cool experience, uh, being able to see it from beginning to end. Um, and so that's something that I, I really do enjoy uh, here at Spaceflight. You've talked a little bit about this. You know, obviously now you work for Spaceflight. You've worked at ATK and stuff like that, you know, sort of more, I guess, publicly visible companies, you know, more corporate type Spaceflight companies. So really what spurred the creation of Spaceflight Inc.? I've been at Spaceflight now for six years. It feels like a very long time in in space years, (laughs) but the company was actually created in, I believe, 2011, and it was really created to address a need in the market to launch small satellites into orbit. The way that it used to be done was it was very costly. There weren't very many launches. There weren't very many opportunities for customers to get launched into orbit if, if you weren't a big primary satellite. And what Spaceflight wanted to do was to change that. We wanted to find ways to shoehorn uh, these small satellites into launches that may have excess capacity. And so we worked with a lot of different launch vehicle providers very early on to say, hey, do you have 10 kilograms, 15 kilograms available and someplace that you can fit a 3U deployer or a 6U deployer? You know, it's it's not that much. You know, you're launching 2,000 kilograms to orbit. We're only asking for 15. And we would go out there and, and try to usually pioneer a way to find a home for these small satellites. That was really what got Spaceflight started is a need in the market to get these small satellites launched where there really wasn't a good avenue to do that. And, you know, what we've done from there is taken it to across many, many LBs in the marketplace and uh, going so far as to offering dedicated rideshare missions like we did on SSOA, 
where we bought an entire Falcon 9 um, and launched 64 satellites there. You know, that was kind of taking the extreme version of, of that. But that's how spaceflight kind of found its way in the market. Yeah. You advertise yourself as the Uber of space. And when I first heard that, I thought, oh, I can download an app and book myself a ride to come and pick me up and take me into space. But obviously, I know that's not how it works, but that would be pretty cool. Uh, but how does this Uber of space thing work? How does that manifest for your clients? So first of all, on the app idea, I think it's great. Um, I really <laughs> do think we should we should continue down that that train of thought. I was thinking about it this morning. The other the other major differentiator I would say is currently we don't offer any human space flight, but it's not to say that we couldn't go there in the future. It's more like Uber Eats. Um, yeah, exactly. So for, yeah, for right now we're focused on non-human payloads, um, but there's always room for opportunity in the future. So it's not a bad comparison at all. We really want to get your payload to space exactly when and where you want to get there. Um, and from that standpoint, I think there's a lot of similarities to kind of that Uber model. And so we basically want to be the, the phone call that you make if you want to perform your mission in space. You know, who do you call? You call spaceflight. Doesn't matter if you're a hosted payload customer looking to operate in orbit. It doesn't matter if you've got a, you know, 2000 kilogram satellite that you want to get launched into orbit. You call spaceflight. What our idea and what we try to bring to the marketplace is options, right? And, and that's what I mean by kind of the various, various payload sizes. We, we try to tailor our offerings depending on the customer need. And so that obviously means we need very broad access to, to launch vehicles. Um, and we need a lot of experience in managing and executing missions all around the world. Mm. We have uh, flown on 53 missions to date and launched 455 satellites to orbit. Wow, And so it's truly a, a great wealth of experience we have. Um, and a lot of it, you don't know until you actually go through it. Um, one time, like, you know, how do you get a satellite to India? It's, it's not, not terribly easy, but once you've gone through it a few times, you have some kinks worked out. Um, and so really what, what we're about here at Spaceflight, and, and again, kind of getting back to the idea of, you know, a similarity to Uber is we really want to offer the right option to our customer. And that might mean You've got a, a very large satellite and they're very specific on their timing. They can't deal with any other risks on the mission. And so for them, a dedicated launch might really be the right option for them. That might be the, the best fit. For, for another customer, they may be new to the marketplace. They don't have a whole lot of funds. So a rideshare mission, they may be more flexible on their, their launch timing. A rideshare mission might be a great option for them. It's really about tailoring our offerings to address customer needs. And that's really what we try to focus on around here is giving the maximum amount of options to our customers is really what we're focused on. All right. So tell us a bit about the Sherpa vehicle. You know, what makes it unique for those, you know, trying to get things in, in this space? I'm so excited you bring up Sherpa. It's an incredible piece of technology that really unlocks capabilities for our customers that we really didn't have an option for in, in the past. So kind of thinking about that same thought of offering options to our customers. They might not want to deal with a bus, you know, a, a satellite bus. They might not have like any idea of how to deal with ground stations, but they've got this really cool payload they want to test on orbit. Sherpa is a great opportunity for them. We can host that, that hosted payload on board their payload and get them the data down that they want and need. They don't need to worry about uh, building of a satellite bus. They don't need to deal with managing with the launch vehicle. They don't need to worry about how to get the data down. We can do that all for them. We have great partners and just an awesome engineering team 
that have put countless hours into breathing Sherpa into a reality. You know, I, I remember when we first kind of dreamed up the idea of an orbital transfer vehicle and, uh, and to see it, you know, to have five Sherpas up on orbit operating right now is, is pretty yeah. incredible. My thing I always talk about where people say, what is it that you do? And I would always say, well, we manage customers from contract signing through launch. And now with Sherpa, I have to change that because Sherpa is basically on orbit operations. You know, the mission doesn't end at launch. It doesn't end at deployment. There's, there's, you know, maybe six months or a year of operations in orbit that, that we can offer now to our customers. Um, and so, you know, the, the Sherpa itself is an orbital transfer vehicle with a, a common core structure, um, but it can be heavily tailored depending on the need for each specific mission. So we have a couple different variants of them. There's the Sherpa FX, which is effectively a free flyer. You can host satellites on board and do deployments. Um, there's the Sherpa AC, which is that same common core structure as Sherpa FX, but it offers attitude control. It offers power. It's a great vehicle if you've got a hosted payload who doesn't really need to change orbits, um, but just wants to operate on orbit for, for six to 10 months. We can do that with, with Sherpa AC. And then we have our chemical propulsive Sherpas, Sherpa LTE and Sherpa LTC. So we have one of each currently operating in orbit. It's very exciting. These are the types of vehicles where, let's say you've got a launch vehicle that drops you off at a certain altitude, but you want to go to another altitude. There's You want to be very precise or you want to phase the orbit of your deployments. The Sherpa vehicles could do that for you. Instead of having to find multiple launches, you can use Sherpa to be able to do these different sorts of things in orbit for you. The last one I'll talk about is, is kind of the, uh, the Sherpa ES vehicle, which is, which is effectively Sherpa LTC, uh, the chemical propulsive version on steroids. So <laughs> it's just got uh, far more uh, propellant hosting capabilities. And so, so this is the Sherpa that we would use to get to geosynchronous orbits or cislunar orbits. Oh, wow. This is one that's, that's super exciting for us. And I think, moreover, kind of the, the big takeaway is for, for us, the way that we look at Sherpa is it's, it's really critical to addressing the market needs of the future, really where the industry is going in orbit servicing, access to geo and lunar orbits and on orbit operations. I mean, mm. Sherpa is our way to be able to satisfy the needs of that market. So it's really critical for us in our future. Okay. I'm going to dumb this right down for myself. This is how my head sees it. It's essentially a ready to go satellite, which people can kind of tailor to their own needs or their own project and put their own experiment within it. Right. And, and, the various options you've got can change uh, orbit or even, as you said, go all the way out to the moon if, if you really want to, right? That's that's what we're talking about. This isn't a rocket. This is something that sits on top of a rocket or as part of many things that are sitting on top of a rocket that, that then gets deployed. Uh, that that's, the ba that's how it is in basic terms, right? Have I nailed that? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We still need the rockets. Our partnerships with launch vehicle providers are still critical to be able to get us to orbit to begin with. But from there, you know, pretty much it's whatever your mission needs, Sherpa can do. You're exactly right. It is a highly tailorable, something that can happen in a very short timeline relative to what we normally would consider launch vehicle timelines. Uh, we can make changes, make modifications to really tailor our offering, tailor Sherpa exactly to what the customer needs. So it's very exciting. 
Okay, so we've had a question come in literally very last minute from one of our Patreon subscribers, Don Irwin. He's been exploring your website, and, and this feels relevant here. First of all, he said he's also been looking at the careers part of your website because the company looks so good. I think that's a nice thing for you to be able to hear. But the question he's asked is, how are the spaceflight mission planners integrated with the launch vehicle company slash agencies and the customers? What does a typical run-up period launch and handoff to the customer look like? That's quite a lot in there but if you can give us like an overview of that that would be great sure and i i think i'm following the question i'll try to cast the wide net and hopefully it'll it'll answer the question generally we start to engage with customers it could be as early as l minus 18 uh 18 months that is it could be as late as l minus 6 l minus 4 my team who are left to the mission execution phase might kill me if I, I mentioned that we've done it before at something like L minus four months, but it requires a lot of a lot of work to be able to accommodate those sort of late additions to a mission. So we look for for manifesting customers again around that L minus twelve month time period. The way that we have our missions team structured is we have a a person within our team who is a uh, a person who manages the entire mission. That person is the one who engages with the launch vehicle provider. They're the ones working with the launch provider on a daily, weekly basis to talk about deliverables, to talk about timelines, launch date changes, those sorts of things. And within that, um, you can think about that mission. We have an engineering team who is supporting the creation of, let's say, a Sherpa vehicle for that mission or an adapter for that mission. They're all doing that sort of work on the timeline set forth by the launch vehicle provider. And then within that structure, there are also a set of mission managers. Um, and those mission managers are working directly with the customer. What they're going to be doing is they're the day-to-day point of contact for a customer on that mission. So right. customer has a question about the launch date, they can provide that along. They're the ones working with the customers on getting deliverables in on time and making sure that everyone is, is tracking to the same schedules set forth by the mission director. That's kind of the overall team structure. And then carry that forward. Integration at the launch site is, you know, typically L minus 30, L minus 45 days from launch. And that's usually an opportunity where the mission directors, uh, the people managing the missions and the customer managers, the mission managers will meet together at the launch site of the integration facility with the customer to do that integration of the customer, whether it's to a separation system or a deployment system, um, a deployer. And they'll then perform that integration. And then the handoff to the launch vehicle will happen sometime after that. Again, I, I hate to kind of speak in uh, such wide timelines, but one of the things we talked about before is just it's heavily dependent on the launch vehicle and the yeah. mission. And as we've mentioned, it's kind of our calling card where we try to maximize those options. It means that we work with a bunch of different launch vehicle providers. And so those timelines are highly dependent on that launch vehicle provider. Um, some asking for more time, some asking for less. Here's a follow-up. You know, you guys are kind of a one-stop shop for a lot of things, or you're becoming one. Um, is it difficult to work with so many different companies and agencies and, and in different countries? You know, logistically, that if in my head, that would be a lot. That would be like kind of a, a nightmare. How do you guys do it? It's a challenge. You know, every time that uh, a new launch vehicle comes on the market, I think, great, another option for our customers. But I also <laughs> think what that means for our team to manage. Uh, it means another new requirement set. You know, Each launch vehicle has their own sets of requirements. They have their own sets of deliverables. 
they have different timelines and I can't go to one launch vehicle provider and provide them exactly what I gave to another launch vehicle provider. That's it's not the way it works. And so logistically, it, it is very difficult to manage. The thing for spaceflight is over time, we've added more and more launch vehicles into our portfolio. Um, and so every time we do it, we end up obviously getting smarter about how to integrate those sorts of things into our portfolio. We build out templates, we build out deliverables. Really what, what we try to do is, while it is very difficult for us, we try to make it look as seamless and as painless for our customers. <laughs> yeah. And that can be a challenge. But we've really been able to develop a little bit of a playbook over the years to help us manage all these different launch vehicles. One of the big things that we offer to our customers is, is remanifesting. You know, that's, that's kind of a part of what, what has to happen, you know, whether it's a result of the launch vehicle being delayed or the customer being delayed. While it is very difficult to manage all of these additional launch vehicles, what that means is a relief valve in the scenario yeah, where there's a bad day. You know, let's mm. say a launch vehicle has a failure. It happens, right? Space is hard. In that scenario, if we have other launch opportunities because of our wide, wide, wide LV partners that we have in the marketplace, we can offer another option to our customers. You know, say, hey, I know, I know this one didn't work. They're going to be delayed six to eight months, but guess what? We've got another launch going in three months. If you're willing to do it, you know, here are the conditions associated with it. Do you want to pull the trigger and move forward with this mission? We can do that for you. Mm -hmm. And we only can do that because of the all of the opportunities we have and because of the work that we've done in the past to set us up to be able to do those remanifesting changes. It is very difficult, but when you're able to actually get a customer launched after kind of, you know, a launch vehicle bad day or a customer's had a bad day and they can't just make a mission, uh, it, it's really rewarding to be able to, you know, to be there integrating them and actually be happy about that. It, it's all kind of worth it in the end. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about this in terms of being able to remanifest a, a payload. That's pretty cool. It really is critical to have options. Mm. You know, it's one of the main reasons why when we talk about why would a customer come to spaceflight? Generally, the reason why you'd come to us is you'd rely on our experience. You know, we have a lot of a lot of experience of how, how do you get to India? Or, you know, I've got to get my shipment to Kodiak, Alaska. How do I do it? We've done it before. We know how to do it. But also, if you come to us, you're not booking directly with a launch vehicle provider. So we have options for you if you are not able to launch successfully, if your timeline changes, if their timeline changes. We have all of those other relationships that we can try to leverage to find a ride for you. Again, getting back to that theme of you know exactly when and where you want to go, the when might change as the mission evolves, um, as we kind of liken to see. So it's really about options for our customers. Yeah, you're not boxed in with one launch provider, are you? If that's right. one has a nightmare, there's other options. That's exactly right. So that's, that's been one of our main focuses. And, and it's one of the reasons why we're so excited to see all the new launch vehicle entrants coming into the market. You know, we either are actively working on launches or are planning on it with, with many of those. And so it's a really exciting time to see the additional churn in the market and hearing on and seeing all those additional launch vehicles come in. Um, we're super excited to see what opportunities it presents for, for spaceflight and for our customers. So I recently saw that you've been personally been appointed to Comstack, which is the Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee. Uh, some of our listeners may have not heard about Comstack. So what is it and what does it do? As you mentioned, you know, recently appointed, it's a great opportunity. Um, I, I think it's, it's very humbling to be part of 
when you look at some of the names across the the advisory committee, I often think that maybe it was a mistake. <laughs> when I first got a phone call from an individual at the FAA, it went through to like my Zoom answering machine that I have because that was the number that was listed. I thought it was kind of a bogus call. Um, <laughs> and my my general counsel at Spaceflight said, hey, did, did somebody reach out to you about this? I was like, oh yeah. And they're like, well, this is real. You should give them a call back. So I did. And yeah, I ended up just earlier this year, got uh, I got the letter saying that I had been accepted to the, the Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee. So super exciting. For those who don't know, the committee was actually started in 1984. And really, its main goal is to advise the FAA on space transportation. So for those who, who aren't familiar, if you're operating in the space domain in the US, there's a couple different regulatory bodies that you're going to be working with, probably more closely than others. For in-space comms, photographs, those sorts of things, it's FCC and NOAA. They're the ones who really dictate that space. For launch and launch operations, it's the FAA. That's their domain. And so obviously, one of the things that we're seeing, as I just mentioned, is a, a great deal of change in terms of the number of launch vehicle providers. We're seeing an increase there. We're seeing an increase in human space travel as well. Um, and so I think it's it's a really exciting time to be involved with helping provide and helping shape some of the legislation that's out there related to the industry. I think it'll be really important for, for the industry to help talk a little bit about what help they need in, in making this a more accessible space, especially as it relates to, you know, just kind of that rapid change in the industry. It's traditionally, I think, one of the things that have been, it's been the most challenging for us at Spaceflight, just speaking on Spaceflight's behalf. It's very hard to be able to, to negotiate through the different regulatory requirements. They're there for an important reason. But whatever we can do to try to make sure that we can safely manage those regulations while not purely stifling the industry, I think is really important for us to think about. Um, as the industry continues to grow, as we continue to see more launch vehicle entrants come onto the market, and as human spaceflight becomes more real, you know, it's, it's incredible to see what's being done these days. Absolutely is. Right. So there's there's obviously right now a lot of talk about Artemis and the debate over whether the high costs mm. of these missions are sustainable. What can a company like Spaceflight add to an Artemis style mission? Is that something you'd like to do? Whew. That's a great question. I'm sure like many of your your listeners, we were all up at various times of the day or night depending on when it was going down to, to watch the many attempts, but also the, the actual launch. I was on an airplane traveling back from Colorado, um, watching it on the plane Wi-Fi oh, and, wow. and just kind of thinking like, it's happening, it's happening. And I looked around, I'm like, why is, why is this not on the, the airplane TV? But it was super exciting, uh, especially considering the, you know, I remember my time at ATK, we were just starting to work on the, the five segment solid rocket booster, um, which is what's featured on Artemis. So uh, it was it was a very exciting time. I think certainly Artemis is uh, is meant for a different mission than what many of the commercial missions are. What I would say, you know, in terms of how spaceflight might work with something like that is, for the right customer, we're open and willing to kind of hear if this works for them. Really, we're here to address kind of the customers' needs in the market. Um, and if there are customers and this is a viable opportunity for us, we would certainly look into it as an option. I think there's not a day that goes by that we don't think about what sort of launch vehicle pairings or opportunities might be beneficial to our customers and 
how we can secure that capacity and how we can work in that space. And so while Artemis might seem like a, or Artemis-like missions might seem like a long shot, I think we're, we're more than willing to kind of look into it if, if there's a real customer need. The other thing that's obviously a hot topic over the last few years is space debris and, and the huge amount of stuff we've now got going around our planet and further. Obviously, with the Sherpa uh, vehicle, you have some control over some of the payloads that are in, or are in orbit. How important and how much are you looking at space debris and making sure that things are disposed of correctly once their life is finished in space? Yeah, it's a great question and, and certainly something that's very top of mind for us here at, at Spaceflight. You know, one of our main goals here is to be good space stewards, good stewards of space. And part of that is, is deorbit. Um, it's become a very important thing to discuss um, and to be involved with considering the amount of uh, the increase in the number of launches of satellites into orbit, right? Sherpa is a great way for us to be able to minimize some of that debris. So uh, a great example of that would be, let's say you've got a customer who, who builds a satellite bus and they want to get launched on orbit um, and they have a very specific mission. What you could do in that scenario is they could take their payload, put it on Sherpa, um, we could do that with several payloads. And instead of multiple buses uh, operating in orbit, you could have one single bus operating in orbit, you know, basically minimizing the amount of what eventually will become space debris. The other great benefit of Sherpa is uh, the fact that we have a propulsion system on board. Um, and so what this could be do, what this could do is after our mission operations are complete, we could deorbit the vehicle to a safe orbit so that it, it does re-enter within a certain period of time. Uh, I think, uh, again, most of your listeners are probably very familiar with the recent FCC notice that they're going to be shifting from a 25-year to a five-year rule, which is, which is pretty significant and, and quite frankly, something that the industry has probably been looking at and has been on their radar for a number of years at this point. So It'll be important for customers to, uh, as they work on applying for their licenses, to be cognizant of this. Sherpa is a way that we can help, uh, whether it be in the future, uh, docking operations, you know, grabbing a hold of a satellite and being able to offer a service where we could deorbit that spacecraft on their behalf. That's another opportunity for Sherpa to, to be mindful of our, our place within uh, the greater space domain and make sure that we're being those good stewards that we want to be. So not only making sure that our own vehicles are not contributing to space debris, but what else can we do for the industry to help make sure that space is sustainable for years to come? And finally, before we went into this interview today, you know, I was kind of thinking about how you know, the satellite industry has, has changed so much over the last 40 years. You know, if you look at the 80s, for example, I mean, sat they, satellites were huge back then, like big, physically enormous, very expensive. You know, a regular person like you and me, we couldn't afford probably to send something like that into space. It was usually the domain of NASA or the military or a very large corporate entity. Obviously, nowadays, that's changed. You know, you have people can send up payloads, you know, all sorts of customers can send up payloads. So where do you see spaceflight, you know, in, in 10 years, You're the company in 10 years and, and maybe 20 years, you know, what trends do you see for payloads and payload delivery in the, in the near and, and maybe the distant future? Let me get my crystal ball out. 
as you pointed out, I mean, I, I, 40 years, I feel like in six years, things have changed drastically. Launch costs, transporter has, has drastically changed the, the cost to get on orbit. And, and it really does enable you know, a, a new subset of customers who previously were unable to access space. Now they have access to it. So it's really incredible in the years that, that I've been working at Spacelight to see how things have changed. You know, if, if I were to think about spaceflight 10 to 20 years from now, what I would expect to see is, you know, if I kind of have a vision, is a, a persistent network of, of Sherpa vehicles in orbit performing operations, whether that be fueling, space situational awareness, prox ops, boosting customers to unique orbits, you know, really kind of a, a highway between LEO and cislunar orbits where Sherpa vehicles uh, are traversing those orbits, delivering materials, hardware, fuel to customers, operating and doing all sorts of crazy things in orbits. You know, our, our thing at Spaceflight is not necessarily to, to do those things that those customers are trying to do at the orbit, but to, to provide them things that they need to be able to do that. Whether it's, mm. you know, again, a boost to that orbit, whether it's, hey, we need more fuel for this thing that's doing something in lunar orbit we can get the fuel there for you. So you can worry about your mission. It's not unlike what we talked about with hosted payload operations. It could be that you don't want to deal with building a satellite bus. You don't want to deal with getting the data down. You just want the data. You know, we're here to be able to provide that solution to you. So, so yeah, I think, you know, I know we talked about looking back 40 years. I'm super excited to see where the industry goes in, in 10 to 20 years time. I, I think we're really on the cusp of of seeing some really great things and seeing massive change from a, a focus on low Earth orbit to some of the orbits like geo orbits and lunar orbits, I think is going to be really where the industry is moving and where it's going to move to and, and really about supporting those operations out at those different points is really where spaceflight wants to go. This is so fascinating. We, we've spoke to a few people recently where my mind just is getting blown by the prospects of what's coming up and, and uh, where we're going to be in not that much time, uh, which is crazy. Bear in mind, it felt like we were quite stagnant for quite a while. So thank you for sharing this with us and letting us know what you guys are doing. Uh, this has been really, really wonderful interview. So thank you very much, Tony. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll keep our yes, eyes peeled for further developments on, on what you're up to. And hopefully... We'll see a lot more of your work up in orbit soon. That's great. Yeah. So uh, certainly uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you guys. And uh, and yeah, follow us. We're on Twitter. We've got lots of great content up there. And obviously our website as well, spaceflight.com. So thank you guys for the time. Thank today. you. Fantastic sports fans. It's trench time and market. Copy that. I know I said it during the interview there, but this is blowing my mind. And it's another week where we've got a company on which is expanding what I thought was possible within the realm of space. We've essentially got a company who can take whatever you want and put it wherever you want, right up towards the moon. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's really awesome because uh, before we did this interview, and I, I touched on it during the interview, you know, I was thinking about how when I was uh, growing up during the 80s, you know, satellites were big. Like when you thought about a satellite, you thought about something gigantic. Yeah, the size of a building. Yeah, something like Hubble, you know, something yeah. that was gigantic, billions, millions of dollars, very expensive, something usually that either a contractor made, you know, and they had probably funds to build it. NASA had the contractor make yeah. it or the military made it. You either had to have a space shuttle or, or a Titan or something big to get it up. 
And regular people couldn't just send up a satellite. Let's say I'm a scientist, hypothetically, or something. I couldn't just be like, man, I would like mm. to design this instrument to send up into space to to see what it's going to, you know, what it sees. You could just couldn't really do that. That There wasn't that capability back then because everything was just so big and expensive. And I feel like now companies like Spaceflight are enabling, you know, regular people who don't have millions or billions of dollars to send up scientific instruments and payloads and things like that. And I feel like it's really opening space for regular folks, which is awesome. You know, and I, I really think that's the way the future should be going. Not to say that, you know, we shouldn't send up larger satellites that are capable of doing a lot of different things or anything like that. But I think the smaller sats are sort of the wave of the the future, whereas, you know, regular citizens can do stuff, which to me is is really the point. Yeah. Imagine being a science student now, perhaps doing a PhD yeah. or something like that. And it's not beyond the realms of possibility of getting a project in orbit at yeah. that level and that's super inspiring like if i was a 15 16 year old kid now into science i'd be thinking wow i can have something in the next few years that i'm working on going into space that's going to change something or you know it just opens so many possibilities and and could we just uh give them some kudos for choosing such a cool company name Yes. Imagine being called Spaceflight. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's such a great, that's name. a great name. It is. It's just, hey, we do spaceflight. That's to me, it's like perfect. It's very just it's simple, it's to the point. It's very like, hey, this is what we yeah. do. I, I think it's a great name for a company. Full disclosure, Mike, the company that I work with, Celestis, we have worked with. Oh, them. I didn't know that. When when I booked this, I didn't know that. Oh, that's amazing. We are doing um next year's Excelsior flight with them, and uh, we've already a boot. Yeah, we've already delivered the payload to them, oh, wow. so they already have. But I remember seeing the pictures and everything from them, and I was like, man, I love their. And I'm not just saying this because my company's worked with them. I want to make this very clear that I have no financial. Doing this podcast isn't what's the it's not sponsored or anything like that. Yeah, it was just yeah, this, we're not sponsoring. Yeah, I, I had generally had no idea when I arranged this interview that that was the case. Yeah, there we go. Not a conflict of interest, you know, or anything like that. You know, they're not paying me or anything to be like, oh yeah, I think it's great. You know, they're not paying me some special fee under the table. But um, I saw the pictures and I was like, man, I love the the imagery surrounding this company. It's just like, hey, we do space. Yeah. I like the idea of accessibility to for regular people mm. to space nowadays, you know, because like I said, growing up in the 80s, we had the space shuttle, which was awesome. But back then it was like the realm of regular, you know, people being able to send stuff to space was just not it was just not something that was possible back then. I look at it now, like if you look at the first satellite that America ever sent to space, Explorer One had a little instrument by you know, University of Iowa, right? James Van Allen, you know, that was a little satellite, not very big. If you see diagrams of it, it's surprising how small it was because it was such a big deal. Yeah. You know, it was such a big achievement. But that little scientific package that Van Allen put to, you know, sent up with his with his people, it, it discovered how extensive the radiation belts were. That was a big discovery back then. That was one of the biggest scientific discoveries of probably the 20th century and it was accomplished by this little instrument so to me that really speaks to how smaller satellites and how sort of more independent 
researchers really have a huge impact on spaceflight. And to me, Van Allen is like the ultimate example because this wasn't like a famous dude at the time. He was, you know, a professor at the University of Iowa, very humble, not somebody who courted the limelight. And that small package and that little experiment really revolutionized science. And I think now we're developing the capability. We can have tons of people just like Van Allen yeah. who are making discoveries like that. It's like we've always gone full circle with it, isn't it? Yeah, I think that. and I, But I think that's awesome yeah. because I think that I keep coming back to the word accessibility. And I love that because I feel like humanity got away from that over time. You know, I think during and I think during the 80s, I've done a little bit of talking to people who are around during that time who were involved in commercial space flight. And back then, they were like, why don't we just have small sets that regular people can send up things in? But no, back then, everything was huge. Everything was like this big, you know, these giant satellites that took several astronauts to maintenance and orbit and just expensive, you know, bigger, you know, everything was just very 1980s mentality, (laughs) very 1980s. Everything was big. I think nowadays it's going in the opposite direction of, okay, now we have a capability where we can send things that are a little, you know, less crazy into space that are, they might not be serviceable, but they're more user-friendly. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I used to love those images of the big satellites coming out the cargo bay doors of the space shuttle. But you're right, that doesn't make it as accessible as as it should be. So as always, the full video of that video will be on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things. And if you want to find out more about spaceflight, check the show notes and we'll have links to all their social media accounts and their website. uh, So you can go and check them out yourself. So, Emily, was there anything that we didn't talk about before we both went away, which you think we may have neglected? I'm just going to keep this very brief. Navy football released uh, the the Naval Academy in Annapolis, released their new uniforms. And oh, my God, I watched that commercial for it about 500 times since yesterday. Um, They are NASA themed. I'm a little biased. I'm ex-Navy. These uniforms are just flipping amazing they're by under armor like i said they're space themed and they have a uh, from the seat of the stars written on the back of the helmet and nice. they have bruce mccandless the second hand painted on the helmets that's amazing and bruce mccandless the second is probably one of the most famous uh naval academy grads and obviously he flew the he's the real buck rogers we've had um his son we've had bruce mccandless the third on our show Great friend of the podcast. Hi, Bruce. He probably is listening to this right now. Yeah, when I saw that, one of my uh, Navy friends messaged that to me, and I just about had a cardiac arrest in my condo. I almost just about died. I want every dang thing. I'm trying not to cuss here because I'm so excited. I want to buy everything from that Under Armour line. I mean, it's just, woo, it is just hot. So I'm just putting that out there. Yeah, so that's the energy I'm going to be manifesting for the next few weeks, pretty much. Nice. Well, 
I will put a link to the, the advertisement in the show notes so other people can go and have a look at what you're on about. Funny that Bruce gets mentioned there because I'm hopefully meeting him in Austin uh, next week. Awesome. So potentially as the day this podcast comes out. I can't remember the awesome. exact date, but anyway, hey, that's pretty cool. So we, we got an email, Emily, from uh, the good people at Johns Hopkins University uh, about something which I think is pretty cool. So there's a new interact. I don't, this may have been posted on hipsters. I'm not sure. If it hasn't, it should be. There is a new interactive map which offers the ability to scroll through the universe. So again, there's a video explaining how this all works, uh, which I will put in the show notes. But all you have to do is go to mapoftheuniverse.net, where you can download it for free and explore this interactive map. So it depicts the actual position and real colors of 200,000 galaxies. What? Yep, it's been created by Johns Hopkins University astronomers with data mined over two decades by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And this map allows the public to experience data previously only accessible to scientists. I think this is so cool. Uh, so the here's a quote from the so here's a quote. So here's a quote from the map creator, Bryce Menard, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins. He says, Growing up, I was very inspired by astronomy pictures, stars, nebulae, and galaxies. And now it's our time to create a new type of picture to inspire people. Astrophysicists from around the world have been analysing this data for years, leading to thousands of scientific papers and discoveries. But nobody took the time to create a map that is beautiful scientifically accurate and accessible to people who are not scientists. Our goal here is to show everybody what the university really looks like. I think this is amazing. I used to have this image. I want to say it was of the observable universe and I had it as my wallpaper for like ages. Um, and I think it was put together by a bunch of like different observatories and stuff, what they believe the universe looks like, you know? And I had it, like I said, I had it as my wallpaper, sort of as a reminder, like you're about this big, you know, not very big. Yeah. And I love the idea that there's like this new way to sort of walk through that image that's sort of interactive, that's sort of immersive, because I don't think, you know, I'm not a planet, I'm not a scientist, but I love, you know, I, I like visually to be able to wrap my head around stuff and sort of be like, okay, this is what this really appears like. So I think that's amazing. I'm amazed that we even have the technology <laughs> to do this stuff. Like, what a time to live in. Right now. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I'm hoping it's something they, they keep updating as well as these things change. Because obviously, we're learning about this stuff every day, especially with JWST up there. Yes. I forgot what I was reading this week, but I was it was an astronomy article, and it was basically talking about JWST is really just turning a lot of stuff on its head. It very much like Hubble did almost 30 years ago when it we started getting the first good Hubble images and people were like, yeah. okay, this changes a lot of stuff that we previously thought. And now it's the same thing is happening again. I, I just love that every generation we kind of have these successive innovations that really change what we think about just not just the universe, but our circumstances here. Yeah, absolutely. So this is something I feel like we neglected last week. I think this is really cool. Links are in the show notes, and I think everyone should go and check it out. Oh, I've never put a flag up in the boat before. What? Pull that in. 
That's all we have for you this week. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and hope that you might want to keep on listening and sharing with your friends. If you're in our Patreon, then I'm hoping to have shared some photos and maybe some videos from my travels across the US uh, and all the air and space museums I'm hoping to visit. If anyone wants to sign up, you can go back and look at all the previous content we've posted. It's a pretty good deal if you ask me. Head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things. I'm a little biased, but I agree completely. I think you get a pretty good deal out of it. Uh, thank you for listening. We really do appreciate it. We do hope that over the next few weeks, you find your own ways to mark the 50th anniversary of Apollo 17, the final Apollo moon landing. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.